Well, good morning, everyone. If you guys don't know who I am, my name is Matt. I'm the minister, or as I was lampooned this morning, the pastor. Uh, we're going to be in the book of John. We probably don't say this kind of thing enough, but just, just so you know, we are walking through the, the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is just a biography of the person of Jesus. And um, I, just, I just want to encourage you, if you're here this morning, and this is all new to you, and all these songs that we're singing, and these prayers that we're praying, and all the scripture, and this is just kind of foreign and new to you, and you don't really know who Jesus is, you could not be in a better place this morning to hear about the person of Jesus from the biographies that he's given to us. And so if you are here, and you're just, I just want to learn about Jesus, um, the passages that we've we've chosen this morning are are primed to help us understand who the person of Jesus is. And so we're going to get into this in John chapter 6. Um, now, just to catch up from where we were last week, what we saw at the end of John chapter 5, there had been this kind of argument between Jesus and some of the, the elite leadership of the day, the religious establishment. And Jesus had uh, told us that he has given us witnesses to himself. The Father's given us witnesses to Jesus. So he's given us a number of witnesses, one of whom is the Old Testament man Moses. And Jesus sp- says explicitly, Moses wrote about me. Moses wrote about me. And we're going to see that's incredibly relevant for the passage that we're in this morning. So if you guys don't mind looking with me, John chapter 6, John chapter 6 this morning says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread? so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said to them, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets and fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus again withdrew to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Father in heaven, one more time, we ask that you would make your word clear 
and obvious to us. Father, that you would show us yourself. Father, you know the limits of human rhetoric this morning. You know the limits of this human preacher this morning. Father, you know that there's only so much that we can do of our own strength, but we believe that through your word, you you pierce to the very division of soul and marrow, that through your word, you give us new life and a new heart. So, Father, we pray that you would speak through your word to us this morning to care for us and to shepherd us and to produce in us the good work for which we've been saved. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. There's probably no more consequential question for you this morning than this one. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is Jesus an apocalyptic, wild-haired, crazy preacher... Is Jesus a a, a mild-mannered man? Is Jesus a revolutionary? Who is Jesus? We often want to make Jesus into our own image. We often want to create a Savior in our own mold. And yet, as we will see this morning, the, the Savior that God has given us is in another mold. And then the question, who is he this morning? We, With every week in the Gospel of John, we get an increasing amount of clarity. But specifically this morning, we are going to see him with a very, very clear picture. Who is Jesus? So to answer that question, I want to answer three big questions. Three big questions. One, what does he do? What does he do? Two, what do these, what does these things that he does mean? What do they mean? And three, who do they tell us that he is? Who do they tell us that he is? So what, what, and who? What, what, and who? So what does Jesus do? Well, in this story that we just read this morning, and it is, even though it's two different events, it is one story put together. Jesus does signs. He does signs. Or you might say that he does miracles, and that would be true too. But the, the, the word used here is signs, that he does signs. He does miraculous signs. And these, we'll, we'll talk about the importance of that in a minute. And so I just want to walk through these, these two stories just so we can kind of have something ahead of us and then we can kind of start to dissect them. So on the one hand, the first sign that he does is he, he feeds the 5,000. He feeds the 5,000. So Jesus goes, he, he's on his sojourns and he goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That's probably the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. That's important to know because the Sea of Galilee has two names. It's called the Sea of Tiberias, which means that John, when he's writing his biography for us, is assuming that we're not going to know everything ahead of time, that he's writing this biography for those who are outsiders, those who, who don't necessarily have background knowledge to the person of Jesus. And John, as he's writing this gospel, he certainly has those people in mind. So he calls it the Sea of Galilee, which is what would have been known to those who were raised in Palestine, and also the Sea of Tiberias, which is what those who were raised in uh, Greek background or Latin backgrounds would have called it. It's named after one of the emperors. And so a large crowd is following Jesus because they see that he's doing all these signs, all these miracles. And they, they see that he's walking with them. They, 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 they see all that he's doing, how he's healing the sick, how he's giving the blind sight, how he's ha- healing the lame. And Jesus sees that they're coming. 
Jesus sees that they're coming. And so it says in verse 5 that he lifts up his eyes and sees a large crowd coming toward him. And he sees this crowd coming. He's on the eastern shore of the, the coast of Galilee, I, I believe. And, and so he, now pay attention to this. He turns to Philip. Now, way back in chapter 1, we, we met Philip. And Philip is kind of more, we saw this a little bit. There's very little dialogue that Philip has in the four Gospels. Philip is a little bit more of an introvert. He's a little bit more quiet. He's a little bit more studious. He's kind of a yuppie. Uh, Philip is a, a, he's a little bit more quiet. And Jesus turns to him. Maybe if some of you are an introvert, you've had somebody do this to you. Jesus turns to him and asks him a question. And Philip kind of stumbles through an answer. He says, 200 worth denarii, which is just a day's worth of bread. Wouldn't it be enough for each of them to get a little? And it's kind of just a direct answer. There's not much to read into it. Philip is just saying, we don't have enough money. Uh, in fact, a large sum of money. There's some money that would probably be required for people, for a whole family to eat for a whole year. We, we don't have. But one of the disciples, so Jesus says this to Philip, knowing that there's this other disciple who's right next to him. And Andrew is about the polar opposite of Philip. Because Andrew cannot, he's called in one of the Gospels, one of the sons of thunder. And so he cannot help himself. He sees, he sees something happening and he can't help himself to blurt it out. And Jesus, I think, is just baiting this situation. So he's talking to Philip, knowing that Andrew can't help himself and will interject. If any of you have brothers, you, you know what that's like. And so, uh, and so Andrew says he can't help himself. He just jumps into the conversation and says, there is a boy here who has five loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? He just has to have something to contribute. Just has to have something to say in the midst of this conversation, which is exactly what Jesus wanted. It says in verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. So there's a lot of grass in the place, and the men sit down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus takes the loaves, and he gives thanks for it. He distributes it. And notice, we don't even really see the miracle happen. It's this way a lot of the times in the Gospel of John. It kind of just runs over the miracle. You kind of have to like, oh, wait, the miracle happened. And Jesus is just distributing, and he's distributing, and he's distributing, he's distributing. There's not like a big flash or a big bang or fireworks or anything. And yet, there's enough food there for 5,000 men, and we're given to think that there's probably women and children along. And then Jesus tells them to gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing would be lost. So they gather them up and fill up their 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves and left by those who had eaten. When it says when the people saw the sign that he had done, when the people saw all that he did, when they saw how he had fed the 5,000, you can kind of imagine it probably wasn't all at once. Probably those closest to Jesus realized what was happening first. And you can imagine the murmurs that are working their way through the congregation. You can imagine how people are starting to get worked up because they see what Jesus has done. He's provided enough food for them. They say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, quoting from Deuteronomy 18. And so Jesus, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, withdraws to the mountain by himself. And the disciples, you ever have somebody who just leaves you behind? If you're a middle child, you know what that's like. The disciples get tired of waiting for Jesus, I guess. Actually, that's not true. We know from one of the other gospels that Jesus dismisses them. The disciples get down into the sea and they get into a boat and they start to across the sea. So they're on the eastern shore across to the Sea of, 
uh, across the sea to Capernaum. That's about seven miles. So about seven miles they're going on this sea. And it says that it became dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. I want to point out a couple things that are significant about verse 18, that the sea becomes rough. First off, um, the Sea of Galilee is known for its wind gales. So it's known for these storms. And these fishermen who are on the sea are experienced fishermen. They've been through windstorms before. They know what this is like. And if they are having trouble in this storm, that tells you something about the nature of this storm. That tells you how mighty this storm was, how difficult it was. And so uh, even by mentioning the, the, there's a rough sea and the wind is blowing, that's something that Jesus nor, that many of the people in the sea of, uh, who are familiar with the Sea of Galilee would have known about. And I also want to say this. Verse 18 makes no sense because why would you include that about the Sea of Galilee? Everybody knows the Sea of Galilee has this rough wind unless the person who's writing this down for us was actually there. So John is presenting for us a reliable account of his own experience. And the sea is rough, and there's a wind that's blowing. And they row about three or four miles. That's about halfway across the Sea of Galilee. It's not long, um, but it's taken them, we're given to think, several hours. And they see Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And one of the other accounts in the gospel says that he was like a, a, a phantasm, like a ghost. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid, fear not. And they're glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Two signs, two miracles that he does here. And, and each of these miracles are pregnant with meaning. They're packed, they're invested, they're full of meaning that God has for us. And the main meaning I want to I show you, they're signs. And so signs signify something. They're explicitly called signs several times in this. I want to show you how these signs connect this story to the book of Exodus. Okay? So these, these signs, these miracles that Jesus has done, connect this story to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Now, I know many of you have seen the Prince of Egypt or Charleston Hester whatever his name was, the Ten Commandments. I know many of you are familiar with the background of the story of Exodus, and um, maybe many of you have read through the book of Exodus in the Bible, and yet um, maybe for some of us, we, we haven't gotten to Exodus yet because we're still working our way through Genesis, and so it's not super familiar. So I'm going to do my best just to kind of give you an overview of the book of Exodus, and then we'll kind of draw some connections. So the book of Exodus begins with the people of Israel, 12 tribes that have been captive in Egypt for 400 years. There are 12 tribes that are captive, they're in, in Egypt, and they cry out to the Lord, and God raises up an unlikely leader. He raises up somebody who um, would not, on first blush, have seemed like a logical leader. He, he's a man who, on, on the one hand, is a little bit too angry, and on the other, he is a little bit too afraid. And so um, because of this, the situation that Moses ends up killing somebody and he runs into the desert to hide and he's in the desert for 40 years. And at the end of the 40 years, he sees he, he's following one of his sheep that has run away and he sees, he sees this bush that is burning and yet it's not consumed. 
sees a bush that's burning. And so he wonders, what, what's the deal with this bush? And so he goes and uh, God speaks to him from the bush. And he tells him that he's heard the cries of his people in Egypt and he is going to send him to rescue him. And Moses says, who am I to tell them has even sent me to them? And of course, um, the Lord responds with the words that we read from one of our scripture readings. The I am has sent me to you. The I am, the, the one who is. That's going to be important in a minute here. So Moses goes back, and by the hands of Moses, God uses ten plagues to pry the fingers off of the people of Israel. And he used these ten plagues. And the final plague is the plague called the angel of death. And God tells the, tells the people of Israel that, if they, that the whole land of Egypt is going to be passed over by the angel of death. And the angel of death is going to kill the firstborn son of every family. And the only way to escape that, the only way to escape that judgment is by putting the blood of a Passover lamb over their doorpost. So when the angel of death passes through the land of Egypt, he looks down upon the, the doorposts that have blood over the doorposts, and he passes over those, those houses that have made atonement, that have sacrificed for themselves. And of course, uh, because of this, Egypt finally, uh, he, Egypt finally releases Israel. It's been devastated, and so Israel comes down to the Red Sea, and God causes a wind to blow through the whole night so that the Red Sea is parted and the people of Israel can cross through safely to the other side. And of course, God brings them to the mountain, to Mount Sinai, brings them through the desert. And on Mount Sinai, he gives them his law. And of course, the, the story of Israel continues after the Exodus. And they, they come to the promised land and they inhabit the promised land. And yet the people of Israel's heart is always stubborn and it never obeys the word. It never obeys the Lord like it ought. And so after centuries of threatening, after centuries of warning, after centuries of admonishing and pleading, God sends the people of Israel into exile again. And then he brings them back. Now, here's where you just have to understand something. Even though God brought the people of Israel back from exile, even though he called them back from the nations, there was still kind of this feeling that the work was not yet done there was always kind of this feeling that there was going to be another exodus, another return. There's always kind of this feeling that, that, there, that they never quite, the exile was over and yet it wasn't. And of course, God had been promising since the beginning of their time as a nation that he was going to do this, that he's going to accomplish another exodus. So we see in Deuteronomy 18, Moses himself prophesying, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then Isaiah, years before the exile comes, Isaiah prophesies. He says, for thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing. You shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. That's a reference to the first sojourn in Egypt and then the second with the Assyrians who carved off the northern kingdom. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away from nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. 
And then, of course, even after they come back from the exile, here's the prophet Zechariah who prophesies that they're still, they're still waiting for that second exodus. They're still waiting for the, the new exodus. Zechariah prophesies this. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries, they shall remember me. And with their children, they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. And all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Here's the point. Even though God had done this amazing work in the old Exodus, and he had brought them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land, that there was always this feeling in the old covenant. There's always this feeling in the Old Testament. There's always this feeling that there's more to come, that God is going to do the same thing again. If you read your Bible and you get through the Old Testament and you're like, it just seems unfinished. That's the point. That they were waiting for the next Moses to come. They're waiting for the new Moses. They're waiting for the next Exodus who will finally, finally bring them into the land of promise. And we come to John 6. And Jesus has just said at the end of John 5, Moses wrote about me. And Jesus himself is drawing the connection between the exodus and what he's doing. And notice all the allusions and all the connections in this passage alone. All the ways in which this, these two signs are, are parallel in many ways to the, sign, to the first exodus. Notice that it's at verse 4 that there, we're told that this sign happens around the time of the Passover. Remember, that's the feast that happened at the end of the ten plagues where they took the Passover lamb's blood and they put it over their doorpost. And notice that Jesus goes up to a mountain and calls the, brings the crowd to himself and brings the disciples to himself, just like Moses did when he gave the Ten Commandments. And notice that Jesus miraculously provides bread for them just as God did when he provided manna in the wilderness. And notice how Jesus himself comes to them on the storm and brings them safely through. And notice how it's a great windstorm on the Sea of Galilee. It's wind on the waters just like it was in Exodus 14. And notice how even the people who are there, even the people who are there say, it's the prophet who's coming into the world. It's the one that Moses wrote about. It's the new Moses. And even the people who are there who don't truly want his rule and reign, who don't truly understand what the new exodus is all about, who don't truly understand the redemption that the Son of God is going to accomplish, even they can see and read and recognize that there is a new exodus that is coming. There's a new salvation there's a new redemption that God is doing a new work in their day. This story is given to us to help us to see the connection between the first exodus and the last exodus. Between the first covenant and the last covenant. 
between the work that God did through Moses and the work that God does through Christ. And so maybe as we're reading through this and you're wondering, well, who does this say that Jesus is? Well, it says he's the new Moses. And you're not wrong for thinking that, but that's not what I have written down in my notes. Because this actually doesn't tell us that he's the new Moses, but it tells us that he is the same God. See, it was God who brought the people of Israel through the first exodus, and the same God brings the people through the second. It's God who had saved his people in the first, and it's God who saves his people in the second. It's Yahweh, the God of Israel, the covenant God, who had saved his people the first time. And it's Yahweh, the same covenant God, who saves his people the last time. See, in this passage, Jesus identifies himself and shows himself and does things that make him look a lot like Yahweh. Let me show you what I mean by that. First, notice just how Jesus has this, what we would call his omniscience. That just means that he knows everything. There's nothing that he doesn't know. And verse 6 says, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. You can imagine Jesus just holding it. He knows what he's going to do. He's holding it in. He knows what he's going to accomplish. He knows what he's going to do. You also notice his, what we call his omnipotence. That's his all-powerfulness. That's when he provides the bread from heaven, when he provides the bread for his people, when he brings them across the waters. Not only does, does he have these attributes of God, but he cares for his people as Yahweh did in the desert and in the Red Sea. That he cares for them enough to rescue them and to provide for them and to save them. It sound, this whole story sounds a lot um, like Psalm 107 which says this, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in the evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. And as if all of that wasn't enough, look at verse 20. See that three, three words, three words says, it is I. And that, I think, is good English. I assume it is. The, the Greek underneath that is the Greek words ego eimi. And ego eimi is used to translate the Hebrew phrase from the Old Testament, I am. So when Jesus comes to them on the Sea of Galilee, when the storms and the winds are blowing, and he's already had all these exodus illusions, he's already done all these things that connect him to the God of the Old Testament, and he comes to them on the Sea of Galilee and says, I am. He's identifying himself as the God of the covenant. 
It's a new exodus, but it's the same God. It's a new exodus. It's a new work of God, and yet it's the same God. He's the one who comes to them as the God of the Old Testament, as much as Moses saw and heard the glory of God through the bush that is burning and yet not consumed. Now we have to read all of this in light of what we've already seen in the, chap- in the book of John. We have to read all of this in light of what we've already seen in the book of John. And one of the things that we saw at the beginning of John and John 1.29 is this description of Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that is a reference to the Passover in the Old Testament. That's a reference to Jesus being the Passover Lamb. See, in the Old Covenant, Yahweh was content to look down on the Passover lamb over the doorpost and to pass over their sins. But in the new covenant, the Lord is content to become the Passover lamb and to have himself put over the doorpost and to be the one who takes their sins upon his shoulders. It is the same God, but it is a new exodus, a greater exodus the last exodus, the final exodus. Who does Jesus say that he is? Who does Jesus reveal himself to be in this passage? He reveals himself to be the same God of the Old Testament. Christians, this is who your Savior is. Your Savior is not just a really, really smart guy. Your Savior is not somebody who can do parlor tricks. Your Savior is not somebody who's really clever. He's not someone who's pulling, uh, who's trying to do a prank. This is not like a gotcha moment. This is the Son showing the glory of the only God. The same glory that Moses saw in the burning bush, the same glory that Moses saw on the mountain is the glory that comes to them on the waters and says, I am, be not afraid. So let me turn to apply this in just a handful of ways. First, Jesus is mighty to save. Jesus is mighty to save. Jesus is mighty to save. I don't know necessarily why what is going on in all of our hearts this morning, what guilt and shame we brought through these doors. I, 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 don't, I don't know where all of us are at this morning in terms of the anxieties and the fears and the brokenness that we feel. But I do know this. Jesus is mighty enough to save you from them. He is mighty enough to save you. He's mighty enough and he delights to save you. He delights to save his people and call them to himself. Number two. The people that Jesus saves in this story 
are very uninspiring, unspiritual, and unbelieving. (laughs) The people that Jesus saves in this story are not people who have their act together. They are cowering in their boots, so to speak. They are like many of us the first time we went out on a boat. The people that Jesus saves are uninspiring, unbelieving, fearful, and frightful. Which means this. If that is you this morning, if you feel fearful and frightful and unbelieving and doubting and you feel like you've been tossed to and fro, you're exactly the kind of person that Jesus delights to save. That If you are here this morning and you feel broken, you feel like you just don't always get it, If you feel like you've been working so hard to get across the sea, you are exactly, exactly the kind of person that Jesus delights to save. Number three. I think verse 21 is so interesting. It says they were glad to take him into the boat. I think that is a picture of faith. Glad to take him into the boat, earnestly desiring to receive him, to take hold of him, to grab him and grasp him, because it knows that in a world where everything is falling apart, he is the rock of ages upon which we can put our feet. And so I wonder are you glad to take him into the boat this morning? Are you glad to receive him? Have you put your faith in him? Have you grabbed hold of him? Have you taken hold of him and asked him to be your savior, asked him to be your Lord? Would you rather be storm-tossed to and fro, assailed by the storm of your own guilt and shame, Would you rather be weighed down by the things that you've done in your past, by your regrets, and taken down to the bottom of the sea like an anchor? Or would you rather take him into the boat? Number four, and I've got to give credit to this one to Jordan because he told me about this when we were reading through it this week. It's very interesting when Jesus calls a, uh, he does the disciples to himself. He doesn't just call one of the disciples. He brings them all up to himself. He sits down with the disciples, plural, we're told in verse 3. That Jesus, when he, say, when he shows the, himself to one of the disciples, he shows himself to all the disciples. When Jesus saves us, he saves us, plural. That He doesn't just save a Christian. He saves a church. He doesn't just save a person. He saves a people. Which, And we see this pattern throughout the whole New Testament. That the plan of God from the beginning of time was to save a people for himself. Jesus 
if you would say, you know, I just really love Jesus and I, I don't love the church, and I understand how oftentimes church hurt and people who've been through the thick and the thin of it and they've been wounded in situations and communities of faith. I understand the burden of that. But Jesus would say that doesn't, to say that you love him and not the church would be confusing to him because if you love Jesus, you should love the church. As we read in 1 John this morning, whoever says they love God and they hate their brother is a liar. I know that is hard. I know if you've been here, if you're here this morning, you've been broken and you've been, uh, you, there, there's been things that have happened to you and you've been misunderstood and you feel, have felt judged in church. I understand the pain that can come with those things. And yet when Jesus calls a Christian, he calls a church. When he calls a person, he calls a people. Number four, five. Whatever. To receive Christ can help us conquer fear. To receive Christ can help us conquer fear. Verse 20 says, It is I. Do not be afraid. And so, the larger that Christ looms in, in our mind and in our heart, the, the less we should fear less anxiety and nervousness that we should feel. Now, I want to deal with two things. Maybe you're somewhat smart-alecky, and you say, but I've read Proverbs. And I know that Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So shouldn't I fear the Lord? So how can he say, do not be afraid, if he says that I should fear the Lord elsewhere? Uh, last week in, in my sermon, I quoted um, C.S. Lewis where he said, that there's a kind of love which is nine-tenths hatred. There's a kind of love which is craven and turned in on itself. There's a kind of love which is nine-tenths hatred. And I would argue there's also a kind of fear which is nine-tenths love. To fear the Lord is to fear Him in such a way not that you want less of Him, but that you want more of Him. It's to see his grandeur, to see his glory, to see his majesty, and to feel a tinge in your soul about the awesomeness of what would happen if it collapsed on you, and yet to want to draw near to him anyways. There's a kind of fear which is nine-tenths love. There's a, there's a kind of respect and awe that we should have for the Lord. We should take into account his power. And yet that kind of fear that we should have of the Lord, the kind of fear which is nine-tenths love, is different than the kind of fear that Jesus rebukes in the disciples here. He says, but he said to them, it is I do not be afraid. That kind of fear that Jesus rebukes here is a fear that looks at the wind and the waves, the uncertainty and it ultimately feels that those things are bigger than Jesus. The kind of fear that Jesus banishes, the kind of fear which Jesus would call us to out of, is a kind of fear that makes much of our problems and little of our God. 
I'd also say this, to fear the Lord is not a one-to-one prescription to losing our fear and anxiety. It's not like you can say, okay, I fear the Lord and all these other things turn off. It would be great if it was that simple, but it's not. It's rather the daily as we walk with Christ and as we see him, as we reflect on his character and on his majesty, as we see the ways in which he's intervened in our lives and in others' lives, the the greater that we see him to be, the bigger that we see him to be, the mightier that we see him to be, the more our fear dissipates, the more it burns off like the morning fog. And sometimes that takes time. And if you're here this morning, you feel anxious and nervous and fearful and frightened, well, you're the kind of person that Jesus loves to save. And yet I can also tell you that the more that you see the character and the majesty and the greatness of God, the more the way that you reflect on how he's intervened in your life and in those around you, the the more that you have trust in him, the more and more that fearfulness towards other things fade away. Because what can those things do to me if I'm in Christ? What hold do those things have over me if I'm with him? If he is in the boat with me, what storm can overtake me? If the love of God and Christ is for me, who can be against me? To know Christ, to know Christ, to see him, to worship him, to adore him, to reverence him, ought to, over time, dissipate the fear that we have. Number verse 6. Notice the way, notice the way that Jesus provides for his people. Notice the way that Jesus provides for his people. He provides for his people gently and tenderly as a shepherd should. When they're in a desert place and they have no money to purchase food, he provides for them. When they're on the waters and there's a storm around them, he takes care of them. He is a God who cares for his own. He is a Savior who cares for those whom he saved. Jesus does not save us and then leave us to our own devices. Oftentimes, as Christians, sometimes I think we think of Jesus in in ways that would say, okay, yes, he saved us, yes, he did his part, but now I have to do my part. But the reality is to know Christ is to begin a relationship with him and to walk with him day by day and to walk under his care, which means that he cares about us. We see this promise in the book of Matthew. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? That if we are the Lord's and we've received him, if we've taken him into the boat, the Father values us higher than all the rest of creation. And will he not provide for our needs? Will he not care for us? 
Will he not shepherd us through the valley of the shadow of death? Which means this, number six. The ultimate way that Jesus provides for us. The ultimate way that Jesus provides for us is through himself. The way that Jesus ultimately provides for us is by giving us himself. Later on, we'll see as we continue through John chapter 6, Jesus will call himself the bread of life that the Father has sent down from the heavens. That Jesus is the, is the bread of life. He's what sustains and nourishes and nurtures our soul. That God has given him to us to provide for our every need. So that when we have nothing, if we have him, we have everything. And if we don't have him and we have everything, we really have nothing. To know him, to have Christ, to have him in the boat with us is of more value than all the treasure of all the kingdoms of men. Is more life-giving than any physician and is more glorious than anything that any artist has ever conceived. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us the gift of your son. We thank you that he has provided for us by himself. Father, we thank you that We thank you that he has provided for us ultimately by taking our sin and our guilt upon himself. So often we feel fearful and frightened like the disciples. So often we feel like those who who are being tossed to and fro. We don't know where to turn. Father, would you help us to take him into the boat? Father, we thank you that through Christ you have provided for us in a thousand ways. And we'll continue to do so. That you've cared for us and ministered to us. That you've given us so many things. Most of all, you've given us yourself. So I pray for us as we go from this place, that we would go as those who are truly fed by the Lamb of life. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.